0: From the Los Angeles Times, this is Asian Enough. Each week on this podcast, we talk to one guest about the joys, the complications, and everything else that comes along with being Asian American. I'm Tracy Brown. And I'm Johanna Buya. Our guest today is Hari Kundabolu, a
1: comedian from Queens, New York. If you've listened to any episode I've co-hosted, you know I'm from Queens too. But that's not the only reason I'm excited to talk to him. In his stand-up, Hari never shies away from exposing the uncomfortable truths about being a brown person in America.
2: The person I get confused for the most is the Pakistani-American comedian Kumail Nanjiani, right? It was in Portlandia, he in Silicon Valley. And the last time that happened, I explained it to the person. I'm like, look, I get it. We're both brown comedians. However, if you pay very close attention, you'll notice we have completely different faces. <laughs>
0: Hurry also sparked a massive conversation about representation with his 2017 documentary, The Problem with Apu.
2: I should be completely happy, but there's still one man who haunts me. Apu Pedalon.
0: The film brought attention to the racist depiction of the Simpsons character, who had been voiced by a white actor named Hank Azaria for about three decades.
2: Yes, I know Apu is one of the smartest characters on The Simpsons. Granted, the bar isn't very high. Uh. But that's not why people liked him. They just liked his accent.
1: Hurry joins us today to talk about the reaction to the problem with Apu, where he draws the line between activism and comedy and why he keeps it real on stage.
2: So it's not like I use white people as props in my show. You know, I will call white people out when they need to be called out. When someone interrupts, there's a racial element to the interruption. I'm gonna call it out and I'm gonna I'm gonna do what I have to do as a comedian our
0: conversation with Hari Kondabolu after the break.
1: Welcome back to Asian Enough. Without further ado, here's our conversation with comedian, writer, and filmmaker Hari Kondabolu.
0: We're here because we're interested in your story, Hari. You're probably best known as a comedian and a filmmaker, um, but you're also a podcast host of Politically Reacted with W. Kamau Bell. Uh, you're a writer. But there's a through line through all this work, right, right? your social commentary, you discuss race and uh, politics and social justice. Yes. But when you started out in comedy, were you trying to be a political comedian? Like, how did that become part of your act?
2: You know, it's it's funny because I use the word political now because it's easy for people to understand, but I myself don't see myself that way. And I'll do the evolution, at least with my thinking about it. If we're going to allow me to be self-indulgent, I'll go all <laughs> please. in. please. When I started, I just wanted to make people laugh, which is, I think, very fair. I'm 16, 17 years old in high school. I loved stand-up comedy. I'd seen a ton of it. And what I knew was that impressions of my parents or goofy Indian impressions worked. I knew, like, playing off stereotypes worked. It wasn't subverting them. It was straight up using them. And it was effective. And so... That's what I did. And part of me feels some shame, and the other part of me is like, I was 17. Like, you know, especially in that time period, how was I supposed to know better? Or how else? Like, I didn't have any experiences. And so I think that was what I started with until I was maybe like 19. About post 9-11, all of a sudden I'm questioning what it is that I'm talking about on stage. And I'm only doing stand-up in college at this point but it it was something that meant a lot to me and that I was constantly writing and I was wondering what is it that I'm saying when I talk about this stuff, especially post 9-11. It's like, you know, already I see the limited representation has hurt us in terms of deportations and detentions and hate crimes and I'm not contributing anything positive to that. And then I saw Paul Mooney perform in Washington, D.C. Paul Mooney, of course, wrote for Richard Pryor, recently passed away, one of the greatest comics of all time, and particularly with race.
1: I drive down the street, they turn the other way. I stop at a red light, they lock the doors. (laughs) I'm tired of going into stores to shop. I start a parade. Twelve white people follow me around. Can I help you? Can I help you? Only one works there.
2: The show that I saw him do in D.C. that was three hours long, I learned that you could challenge an audience in ways I didn't think you could. And that white people walking out of your show could be seen as a badge of honor and not as I'm failing. And maybe comedy isn't for everybody. And maybe my comedy isn't for everybody and it doesn't need to be. Mm -hmm. I get it. Late on a Friday night, you don't want to hear about colonialism. (laughs) Fair enough. Maybe I wasn't the right person for your bachelorette party. (laughs) I get it. I get it. I'm not... This was a mistake for all parties involved. But I do think ultimately you should say what you believe and you you should say your truth. And so I started becoming political and I definitely saw myself as wanting to be a quote unquote political comic, right? Like someone who talked about race and talked about politics and it was very deliberate. And, you know, I moved to Seattle. I was working as an immigrant rights organizer doing comedy at night. And certainly I viewed myself as like, I'm doing political comedy. And I think especially as I've gotten older, as I've toured, as I've written, I don't see myself as a political comic. Because that means that the things I'm saying are under the bubble of political versus I'm talking about day-to-day lived experiences. Like racism is not political. It's a lived experience, right? Oppression is not a political—speaking up about oppression is as political as not speaking up about oppression, they're equally political if we're going to call one political. So to me, it's like, I get it as a phrase, a shorthand, like, oh, he's going to talk about controversial things. He's going to talk about whatever politics means to you. It's useful in bringing people to the shows, right? And it's useful when, you know, you're sending a press release out. And it's useful because the New York Times called Mm -hmm. me that. (laughs) But in other ways, I think it um, restricts what you can do with the art. And I also think it becomes less effective Uh, When people might not agree with you, you know, I think it's more effective to make thoughtful, funny, personal art that does that, quote unquote, political work, but doesn't, you know, frame itself as that. Mm -hmm. The goal is to make the best, most thoughtful art possible. If it's good, it makes impact. If it doesn't do that, it's failed and somewhat masturbatory. Like that's not what art needs to be effective, you know, in its ability to spread and reach people.
1: Yeah. And you, you actually talked about this a little bit on a recent interview with the Daily Beast. Like you said that you wanted to be more vulnerable in your comedy. Yeah. I mean, what, why do you want to be more vulnerable? Why do you want to share more of yourself in your set? And in the past Did, you know, who you are, did being a brown person, an Indian person, someone who's also politically vocal, kind of factor into your decision not to be as vulnerable in your comedy?
2: You know, I think for most comedians, usually you start with stuff that makes people laugh and you go with the personal first because it's the most accessible. And then if people go into like political topics or larger things. It's kind of inward going out. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And I kind of started the other way, which is why I still talk about like topics like race and gender and sexuality and things that I feel like people have a stake in that Mm -hmm. actually matter, right? But also, it became a convenient way to hide myself through my politics. You never actually know who I am. You know what I feel based on what I'm saying. But you don't actually know who I am. You don't actually know my experiences unless they're in the context of a joke. And so it's a lot of guessing. And so I can kind of stay hidden under the material. And, you know, I've always admired artists that give more of themselves. I think it does make better art. And I do think it connects to people on a on an even deeper level. And one thing that perhaps I think makes some of this more relatable to people, the things I'm saying about race or whatever else, is them getting to know me, actually getting to know me. Like, who are my parents? Who is my brother? Why am I the way I am? What pains have I suffered? Like, what things do I have that you might be able to relate to regardless of race, right? And when you give more of yourself, the audience is more invested in you. So when you start talking about things that might make them uncomfortable, it's like, well, I like this guy. It kind of changes the mood. So instead of like, immediately a side is drawn, I disagree with what he's saying. There's at least that initial, like, I connect with this person and we we don't share this experience and I'd like to know more.
1: Yeah, and you're you're talking about, you know, the audience getting to know you. And one thing that you and I actually share is that we're both from New York. Um You initially grew up out in Jackson Heights, Queens, and then your family eventually moved to Floral Park, Queens. Um, And then I grew up in Ozone Park, Queens, and then I moved to New Hyde Park, which is literally like a town or two away from where you ended up being, too. And... When I was in Ozone Park, Queens, like the kids on my block were Dominican, Puerto Rican, Guyanese. I'm half Bengali, half Filipina. There were other Filipinos on the block. And it really shaped and informed the way that I think about myself and my sense of self. And it wasn't until I left Queens and really engaged fully in whiteness in a a whiter neighborhood that I started to think of myself as brown and broadly Asian rather than my specific ethnicity and so I was wondering if that was something that you had experienced at all, um, living in Queens and then leaving, and and how did that inform your comedy?
2: So Floral Park, Queens, had a growing Indian community when we moved there. It was a primarily, uh, it was a Malayali community, um, like from Kerala, but we were Telugu's, the only Telugu's I actually knew were my family that were in that neighborhood. But there were lots of brown people, so Jackson Heights is like, super, super diverse. It's the most diverse place of the most diverse borough, right? In New York, which is so incredibly yeah. diverse. So it was the same thing you had said. Like, I didn't really identify as Asian till, like, college. You know what I mean? As more of a political idea, if anything. Because mm-hmm. I went to college in Maine, which Ooh. is... That's <laughs> Very like, white. <laughs> that's like New Hyde Park on steroids is basically, yeah. right? <laughs> it, it is the motherland, right? So I... Uh, the, white, the white motherland. Um So... That's when it hit me that like uh all this nuance that is in my identity that I'm discovering as I'm getting older is irrelevant in a place where I'm just other, and I didn't really experience that for the most part until I was in that setting, I guess the way you you must have experienced it in New Hyde Park, where you know I understood, oh, rest of the country isn't like this, this is why everyone's white on t v this is why nobody looks like you know, what What I grew up with at home. It's because this is the country. This is the actual place I'm living in.
0: Well, part of what I enjoy about your stand-up is when you unabashedly call out the white people who, whether they're heckling you from the audience or just, you know, in your yeah, bit. It's
2: fun. It's fun. Some of you seem to be really enjoying this and some of you... Uh, are white. Now, I'm going <laughs> to... So... The next three jokes are about the environment. Um, I don't really want to talk about the environment right now, but it seems like that usually is the progressive issue that makes white people most comfortable, right? So we're going to... We'll talk... Oh, it's for everybody. This is the environment. For everybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a good time.
0: Yeah, and I think um, in a previous episode of our podcast, one of our other co-hosts, Jenny Amato, spoke about how like she kind of avoided going to stand-up shows because it feels like the people of color tend to be the one that get picked on in the audience. So um, Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on being able to flip that script in your
2: shows? I mean, it's, it's, I wouldn't say completely flip the script because, you know, in the situations where people of color get made fun of, there is no provoking. It's like (laughs) when me and my friends, when we were 17, 18, 19 years old, used to go to comedy in the city and they put us in the front row, it's because we were targets for certain types of jokes. And like, Uh, He has some Indian jokes. Well, there's an Indian guy right there. Let's put him up front. You know what I mean? We were props in someone else's show. So it's not like I use white people as props in my show. You know, I will call white people out when they need to be called out. When someone interrupts or there's a racial element to the interruption, I'm going to call it out and I'm going to do what I have to do as a comedian. But when I talk about, like, whiteness or, you know, stories about white people and racism, it's also really about me and my experience with whiteness and racism, right? It isn't like, white people are like this, or white people do this or that. It's like, no, this is how it's affected me for the most part, and this is how it shows up. And I'm only going after individuals if they choose to disrupt the show. And I've had that happen enough times. And in liberal cities, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, I had a guy yell out, Hail Trump! in like the middle of my show in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I tore him a new one and it was really fun. (laughs) But that's not what I planned to do. You know, my art is, I I write things and I'm proud of what I write. And that's what I want to share.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I've had like a very uncomfortable experience recently at a comedy show and not for like the reasons you're saying, but you kind of have talked about like moving away from self-deprecating humor, even though it's sort of about yourself. Um, But I went to, I brought my husband to Vegas for his birthday because what's better than taking two Muslims who don't drink or gamble (laughs) to Vegas? (laughs) But we went to like, we did what Muslims could do, like go to the comedy shows and go to like magic shows. And so we went to the Laugh Factory And, like, from the moment we landed, right, like, there were thin blue line shirts and, like, unmasked, unvaxxed and whatever, unafraid shirts and things like that. I'm already bracing myself. Like, I'm a hijabi. I'm scared. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to try to enjoy myself as much as possible. Right, sure. So I went and we went to this show and it was, like, majority white audience. And I was like, okay, like, we'll see what happens. The... Opening act was a Black comedian and the the headliner was a Black comedian as well. The opening act like made jokes about himself and his family and his friends. And they were like, sometimes played into tropes about Black people, right? And this audience was like hooting and hollering, like laughing. They thought it was the funniest thing in the world. There was a group of women in front of me who were really drunk and let it be known they were Trump supporters several times throughout the show. Thought it was like the funniest thing in the world. The Headliner was making fun of black people, but also making fun of white people, and the audience was silent—like not even like reacting to it at all. Like some, I heard the Trump-supporting women be like, "Oh, this is racist," and I was like, "It's not a safe space for me to be like." Actually, racism requires a system of oppression to back it up. No, so I was like, "I'm not going to say no, that right no, now." <laughs> no, the
2: Laugh Factory isn't the best place for that. I would say,
1: yeah. So, um, so, I, but like, I think the thing that made me so uncomfortable with the first act was that you know, he's not necessarily making black people the punchline, but like, because he is black and it is like, he's talking about his life, like the black community became the punchline and they loved it. Like the white audience was like eating it up. And, you know, my question for you is like, I know you've talked about kind of like not catering your act to white people, but like, have you ever been in a situation where you're like, I like can't make the jokes that I thought I was going to make it, or I'm uncomfortable making those jokes because I don't want to like give them what they want.
2: No, because I don't really have jokes that, get, quote, unquote, give them what they want anymore. I think I did at <laughs> a certain point.
1: Yeah. I
2: think there was definitely I'll give them one and I'll do one and I'll give them one and I'll do one. And then after a point, I'm like, this isn't fun. Like, why is it I'm doing an hour and I'm, I am only like half of it? There are jokes I won't do because I'm like, these jokes are not going to work here. And it's going to it's going to give me too much of a hole for me to like, I can't dig out of it. Yeah. Um. And it's not to say like, oh, so you're going to cut race out of your hour. That's impossible. I don't have enough jokes to do that. <laughs> Even when I try to do a 10-minute set that's free of any kind of political value or, or has any kind of content about race, it becomes either really bland or I can't do it because that's so much of what what shapes me, right? So, yeah,
1: and you you talked about code switching like in language. Do you feel like you code switch in your set as well?
2: I don't know if it's really code switching as much as it's like this joke is not going to get to punchline three tonight, Mm. I don't think. (laughs) You know, I don't, I think we're going to get this far and then we're going to have to go elsewhere because there's, you know, there is a degree of uh, the audience getting raced out, you know, especially if it's a white majority audience, even if they're liberal or whatever. And so I also know there's only so many times I can either talk about race with some audiences or even just say the phrase Mm -hmm. white people just to say that maybe I could even get away with talking about race all the time if I don't say those words. It's as ridiculous as that, you know? Right. The the phrase white people isn't a slur, yet I, I think it feels like a slur to a lot of white people who aren't used to being named. And so just naming it feels like an insult in a strange way. It creates discomfort.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned the white people thing because I think that's honestly what set people off in that audience. They were like, oh my God, like what you said white people and part of it is like, yeah, like they don't like being named. But it's also like it's because a lot of white people, when they say black people, when they say brown people, when they say Mexican people, they are using it as a slur. And to use it back to them, they feel like is an insult. And it's like the only reason you would think that is if you were you trying to insult me when you were naming me.
2: Mm-hmm. So that I mean, it's funny because, you know, Paul Mooney on his first album, Race, He's talking about white people not being able to take jokes about them. They can be racist against anybody, but if it's flipped, mm-hmm. they can't handle it. They walk out of here. And in the show, a couple leaves, a white couple leaves right in the beginning, almost on cue.
1: Because
2: white people are very sensitive. You have to remember that. Oh, they kill me with their sensitivity.
1: So sensitive. It'll be someone make this. Oh, they'll get out of here like little white bunny rabbits. They'll hop out of this motherfucker. <laughs>
2: This lady leaving now, look at her, she's leaving now Yeah. They can't take it
0: I'm telling you, I know white
2: folks they can't It's funny that we're talking almost 30 years later and it's Still the same kind of dynamics Like who gets to tell the story You know, can I be In power when I tell the story That's a lot of it too Like when I'm saying white people, what I'm also doing is naming you Because I have power in this situation I have the mic, people are listening To me and guess what, a lot of them mm-hmm. are laughing So I'm in charge here
0: after the break, we talk to Hari about the problem with Apoo. Don't go anywhere.
1: Welcome back to Asian Enough and our conversation with Hari Kundabolu. Let's pick back up with the problem with Apoo
2: spoke with we lived next to like 7-eleven and there was always like a sense of like oh please don't let it be an indian person working behind the counter because if it is my friends are gonna do like the apu thing i just wonder how many indian americans south asian americans who had to deal with this this guy this apu this one character
0: So for our listeners who aren't familiar, The Problem with Apu is a documentary you did in 2017 that sort of explores the offensive and racist Simpsons character, Apu, and how he's haunted a generation, at least a generation, of Indian Americans and other brown kids. Um, I think a lot has happened since the film was released. People in animation have finally realized that maybe people of color should be the ones voicing characters of color, and Hank Azaria even stepped away from voicing Apu. What are your thoughts on how The Simpsons has handled this whole thing?
2: I mean, it's sad when your heroes, they don't keep up with the times. Do you know what I mean? Like, they went from this cutting-edge show that was certainly the pride of the left in a lot of ways to, like, really fragile, rich white men in a way that was so transparent. And it kind of bums me out, you know, cuz i i remained a fan of the simpsons for a, a while even after a lot of the backlash for me making that documentary. Backlash, by the way, based on what people assumed the documentary was about since so many people <laughs> who hated it never saw it. Of you course. know, i'm pretty sure none of the simpsons people saw it based on what they were saying. It's like i i responded to all these things you were saying. Um so clearly you you haven't seen it. And uh It also, you know, respects the show and loves the show because I was influenced by the show greatly. Um, It just got really ugly. And it's, it's just disappointing. Yeah.
0: Did anyone from the show or Hank Azaria ever reach out to you directly?
2: No, and they didn't need to. It's not about me. It was never about me. It wasn't I'm hurt about this. I was sharing a truth that many people in our community had. Why should they reach out to me? When they did reach out to me via Twitter and stuff, it was usually condescending or insulting, you know? But, like, they don't need to reach out to me, nor was that the expectation. Nor did I expect them to do anything about this, to be perfectly honest. At the end of the day, it was a thing that wasn't discussed before. I'm discussing it now. It's not a new phenomenon to me. I did it. I didn't think it was all that controversial. The only controversial thing is it's something critical against The Simpsons, but it what it's like, how, this is obvious. It's a white dude doing a voice of a, a brown convenience store owner. And the voice is absurd. Nobody sounds like that. And the joke is off, at least initially in the show, off the accent. This is obvious. Like, this is not even dog whistling. It's screaming. Like, the fact that, like, so many people were taken aback, it's like, you're seeing the same thing I'm seeing, right? Like, this is very obvious. And and I think, you know, at the end of the day, I'm right. Despite, like, death threats and hatred from all over the world, especially from places who don't even have access to the documentary, um, because it's not available in the UK. Because it's not available throughout <laughs> Europe. It's not available in Australia when those articles are written. And what they're writing is based on articles they read in the U.S., and based on things they heard and and based on the trailer they saw but nothing else but they knew they would click and every time they would say apu controversy there's no goddamn controversy there's no controversy what are you talking about mm-hmm. there's no controversy there aren't indians marching over this it's too late it's been done
1: no, for sure. I mean, you are preaching to the choir. I'm Like the worst part about Apu for me personally was that in Bangla, Apu means older sister. And so I literally had a cousin I called Apu and my friends would make fun of me. So like I you were preaching to the choir here. Um, But yeah, you weren't just right. Like after the documentary and after like Hank walked away from his role or around the time that he did, like other people started to like walk away from their role. So like there was, you started a conversation that then had an impact do you feel at all vindicated that your documentary made an impact?
2: I don't know. If vindication is is what the word I'd use. I feel it feels positive. It makes it feel like some of it was worth it. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy that it's used in classrooms. I'm happy it's used by parents to show their kids. I'm happy that Uh, You know, Mira uh, Royal Detective is a cartoon on Disney Junior with an all South Asian cast. And I I do a couple of the voices Mm -hmm. on it as a guest. And they said before they started writing, all the writers and producers had to watch my documentary. And so, you know, like stuff like that makes me feel good that like I'm part of the story that happens after the fact. And that certainly feels good in terms of other um, shows, you know, and the changing culture of that. I think that my documentary helped put that discussion on the table. I don't think it's what pushed it over. What pushed it over was all Mm -hmm. the ripple effect. Some of it a very strange ripple Mm -hmm. effect after the murder of George Floyd. Like, you know, when Aunt Jemima was uh, removed after George Floyd died, it's very bizarre. Like, what does that have to do with anything? Right. Like we people have been talking about this and Uncle Ben and the Redskins as a racist mascot. And people have been talking about this for a very long time. Why this moment? And it's almost like, okay, so we're not going to reform police. We're not going to get rid of the police, but you're going to get rid of the Cleveland Indians. Yeah, (laughs) I'm fine with them getting rid of the Cleveland Indians, Mm -hmm. but I'm just saying that's where this is going to go. Not addressing the actual thing, and that's the weird part of the whole thing to me. There,
0: I do think one of the things with the problem with the poo is that it's a thing that shows how entertainment that makes a point that could maybe you know have something to do with pushing the needle in some way, right? It's it kind of crosses into like activism territory, and you still work for a human rights organization. Um, you have a master's degree, right? I think in human rights. Yeah, in human and, rights. Yeah. Do you consider yourself an activist now? Is it no? Separate from, okay
2: no i'm a, I'm a comedian and a podcaster and whatever other term, but I have been an activist and i've worked with great activists and I know what I get paid versus what an activist gets mm-hmm. paid. Mm-hmm. I know that no activism is part time and right. calling oneself an activist because of tweets for example or art or whatever to me is is really doing a disservice to so the people that get paid part-time for full-time work because that's the nature of fighting for justice. And I think that the work I do can be useful as a tool for activism that other people can, whether it's teachers or whatever else, using my work and for maybe it's educational, maybe it's a way to introduce a more complicated topic or it makes people who are actually doing the work feel good because it makes them laugh. But that's not the same thing as actually doing the work.
1: You've talked a little bit about how your comedy has kind of evolved over time. I mean, we are sort of in, not sort of... I mean, like, I'm not gonna like mince words. Like, we're in like a really shitty time politically. It's extremely polarizing. Like, sooner or later, the problem with Apu is gonna be like critical race theory and it's not gonna be a lot to be taught in schools, right? Like, right, right. we're like, I mean, how do you see like the future of your career going? How do you see it evolving and, and like, and how do you expect it to sort of respond to what's going on right now?
2: I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, don't, I won't stop talking about, you know, what's happening in the world and what I care about. Um... You know, I remember when we were making Totally Biased, which was a show on FX that W. Kamau Bell used to host. Mm -hmm. And I was a writer and I performed on it along with a bunch of other great comedians. And, you know, we lasted about a season and a half. And we were ahead of our time by at least four or five years because the stuff we talked about on that show was a lot of the stuff I'm seeing now being discussed in a lot, even late night shows, you know, whether it's police brutality or uh, transgender issues or um, immigration. Like, the way we talk about it, especially with a degree of uh, righteous indignation. I was going to say anger. I'm like, it's not anger. It's more than that, you know? Like, Mm that was new and very much loved by the community that loved it, but it didn't last. And I kind of feel that way. Like, I feel like I've been doing some of this work for a really long time and it's just cool now that people are starting to to like, oh, this is really cool, or mm-hmm. this is I mean, I, I think about ideas I, I've pitched for TV and stuff. And even now I think about it. And it's certainly better than it ever has been. Like <laughs> in terms of representation and opportunities for, you know, historically marginalized groups, this right now is the golden era. But at the same time it's still this idea of, well, how many people are going to relate to that? Will enough people relate to this to be worth buying? Will enough people be able to relate to this um, for it to be financially viable? Um, Which always frustrates me because, like, it's not like, uh, you know, because we're not white, we're aliens that are completely separated from the human experience. And I feel like it never gives people enough credit that, like, they won't figure it out. Yeah, it'll be a little confusing. Like, oh, I didn't know they ate that or said that or that's how that religion worked. But after that, it's the same stuff. Pressure and and love and hate and resentment and, you know, devotion to family, the split between family and public life. Like, that's the same stuff for everybody. It just looks different. Um, that, that gets totally frustrating to constantly have to be relatable, even though I'm a human being and that that should do it.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, and it's not a great analogy, but right. Like a lot of mainstream brands are now like rolling out hijabs and doing things like that. And it's like, people are like, oh my God, they're finally like acknowledging us. This is representation. This is what representation does. But the reality is it's like a massive market. Yeah. But there is it like, is there a sort of like a middle ground where you can kind of celebrate the fact that now I can buy a Nike workout hijab? Or do you feel pretty cynical about kind of the capitalism behind it?
2: It's both. You know what I mean? Like, yes, capitalism has pushed us forward in this way. But that's only because that was the only option available. Like, how else was it going to happen, right? right? And it's not, you know, because the opportunity was given to us because justice prevailed. So it isn't like after years of fighting and Asian-American organizations marching and and saying, like, we're not going to be represented this way, finally, we won. Um, It's because, you know, Hollywood found out, like, oh, those communities have money, too. I want some of that money. Uh, They're building an audience without us. I want that audience. And also the fact that there's like 50 million streaming sites and networks and stuff. Um, so, you know, all of a sudden we're, we're valuable. Um, I think people, you know, who are making decisions realize there is money here. In addition to everyone's looking for the next new thing when they're not making a Transformers movie. Right. And <laughs> all our old stories are their new stories. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, when I made that Apu documentary, that wasn't particularly groundbreaking for me. It it mm. When South Asians say thank you for making that, it's not thank you for making that I learned a lot. Right. I didn't know this racism thing was an issue. I didn't know I was being made fun of. I just thought they were paying respect to my parents with an accent that sounds nothing like them. <laughs>
0: Definitely. And it's also, like, I feel like a lot of things for white audiences, it's what's trendy. Like, it's trendy to be into... Diversity inclusion—is it gonna last? I don't know. <laughs> like we've seen this cycle and conversation for so
2: long. <laughs> I mean that's the that's the thing. It's the fear that it's gonna go away, and I'm I'm also I think that's part of the cynicism too. Like I, part of me thinks it won't just because there's still money to be made.
1: Yeah. But I mean, is it a problem, like if we're taking advantage of this like moment where people want to invest their resources into diversity, into identity, into talking about things that we haven't been able to talk about, even if we're having to dumb it down, are we starting off on the wrong foot if we're starting back at one one in, in order to kind of appeal to this audience that's finally interested in us?
2: I don't think so. I mean, it, I think as an artist, it's frustrating because it's like you want to go a few steps further, but I don't think it's doing us a disservice because there's still great stories to tell and there's still a lot of, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of things that I wish had been made when we were younger that we can make now. Is it as representative of the diversity that exists in the country and in the world? Absolutely not. But it feels like we're moving in that direction. Like, honestly, considering the number of different combinations that make up a human being If you look at like religion, race, ethnicity, your personal experiences, which are never exactly the same as someone else's experience, their traumas, their pains, their parents, all, if you look at all those variables, we should never be repeating a story ever. It's impossible. There's just too many like different things that feed into a story that shapes a human being's perspective and ideas and identity. Like... We have enough stories to never have to repeat anything for what we're watching to always be interesting. So, I'd like to think that things are going to continue in this direction, partly because it's also, it makes for better art.
0: Before we let you go, we wanted to do our weekly segment that we uh, call Asian Enough Confessions. And it's the part of the show where we, you know, talk about a moment or something more broad about. Something about us that has made us feel like we're not, maybe not Asian enough. One game I have never played is when people are like, hey, you speak Japanese, say something Japanese. Like, I hate that game. Um, Occasionally, if someone has like a specific question, like, how do you say hello or something? Like, maybe I'll play. Um, And I also have grown very accustomed to just using, like, the anglicized words of, like, popular Japanese words of kind of a bit of absorbed, like karaoke. I say karaoke, you know, stuff like that. But I've I've done it so long that a non-Asian friend of mine once was talking about a friend of his that lives in Japan who is white and looks at me and goes, you know what? He probably speaks Japanese better than you. Oh, my God. (laughs) And uh, I... As a like a native fluent speaker, it was like I didn't know how to react at that point, other than to like laugh it mm-hmm. off. Like, do I stand my ground? But also, I don't want to speak Japanese just to speak to Japanese
1: prove to prove <laughs> that you speak better Japanese than this white dude who lives in Japan. Yeah, yeah. They're basically asking you to like be Japanese for them, like prove to them that you're Japanese enough.
0: Yeah, and I'm like, but I am, and I can, I am without having to play this game. Yeah. <laughs> what do you have for us, Johanna? I actually, so, you know, I I feel like I'm really,
1: um, being from New York, I feel like I've like engaged with so many different cultures and I'm like, I've worked really hard to like educate myself about all these different cultures. But I have found, especially in preparing for this podcast, like that I just don't know enough about Filipino or Bengali history, and I'm half Filipina, half Bengali, and I'm, like, just starting to write those wrongs, right? Like, I'm reading Empire of Care by this, like, really incredible Filipino professor about, like, how the boom of Filipino nurses in the U.S. is, like, a product of colonialism or and and just, like, things like that, and it's extremely embarrassing. Like, I could probably, like, spit facts about other people's cultures, and I, like, cannot. I'm just learning, really, about, like, my family's role in, like, the bond. Bangladesh Pakistan War, which my grandma and my family like played like a, a pretty interesting role in, like in a, in a very small way. And I'm like, why didn't I know any of this? I'm like out here telling people about their lives and their culture, and I'm like, I don't know, I I can I have no idea what happened <laughs> in Bangladesh and the Philippines. Um, so it's really embarrassing, but I'm trying to write that wrong right now.
0: I do want to channel uh, one of our earlier guests, Minjin Lee, when I say, it's not on you if the education system fails you and you don't want this stuff. <laughs> I'm going to blame this on my parents because I started asking them
1: questions and then s- suddenly there's so many stories and I'm like, where were these stories when like my brain was a sponge and not just like a solid rock that like nothing can penetrate anymore? <laughs> All right, Harry, we gave you some time. Ooh, what do you got for us?
2: <laughs> yes, I-, I feel like it's hard for me to not feel like brown enough. I'm like the dude that made the Apu documentary. Like, that <laughs> buys you major cred. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, I think when I really feel it is when I'm around like the brown literati, mm. you know, like the most like educated South Asians who know, like, like I don't know anything about Jiddu Krishnamurti. <laughs> like, it's like, it's like, this is. He, he was a philosopher, right? Was that? I don't know. It's like, that's when I feel it the most. <laughs> like, no, I did not read that book by Salman Rushdie. Was I supposed to read? It's like that kind of like, man, I'm able to bullshit until I'm hit with like the actual like substance of South Asian diasporic literature and like stuff that I'm like, I, I should read more. Uh, so that that's certainly a moment. Another moment is whenever if I go to an Indian restaurant with someone who, who isn't Indian and, and they're asking me questions about things, <laughs> like what the things are, and I'm like, you know, I end up just saying, well, you know, I'm South Indian. So, you know, this is North <laughs> Indian. So, I, you know, I, it's completely different. And the truth of the matter is I probably should know what it is I'm eating. I should know something. I should know what's... No clue. No clue. <laughs>
0: Do you have an Asian enough confession that you want to share with us? Call us at 213-986-5652. That's 213-986-5652. We share our confessions each week. So now please share yours. Hi, my name is Brittany Smith and I'm calling for an Asian enough confession. My Asian Enough confession is that um, being a Filipino-American, I cannot tan. I have a white dad. And uh, anytime I go out in the sun, I just burn like a lobster. And it makes me feel very inadequate. Love the show. Thanks so much for what you guys do. Bye. And that's
1: a wrap for this week's episode of Asian Enough. Thank you so much to Hari Kondabolu for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, why don't you show us some love? Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Instagram at AsianEnoughPod. Asian Enough
0: is hosted by me, Johanna Buya, And by me, Tracy Brown. Our producer is Asal Sanapur. And our senior producer is Hiba El-Orbani. Our editor is Shawnee Hilton. Our engineer is Mike Heflin. Our original music was composed by Andrew Epen. This podcast was created by Jenny Yamato and Frank Shunk. Special thanks to Clint Schoff, Ben Music, James Reed, and Matt Brennan. This podcast is dedicated to the memory of our founding producer, Lina Anwar.
1: Asian Enough will be back next week with a brand new episode, but I won't be because this is actually my last episode. I have loved going on this journey with all of you, and I've loved co hosting so many episodes with you, Tracy. I'm going to really miss being on this podcast.
0: I'm not going to get emotional. We're going to miss you, and I'm going to miss you especially because I felt like I've gotten to know you much better during this podcast because we don't, you know, we don't get to meet everyone in the newsroom. So this has been, I don't know, I've appreciated the chance to get to know you better. Same. Nobody can see this, but I'm sending a heart to you. <laughs> I'm an Asian heart. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really cute. And remember, it's okay if your sense of humor isn't right for everybody.
2: I get it late on a Friday night. You don't want to hear about colonialism. Fair enough. Maybe I wasn't the right person for your bachelorette party. I get it.